1: We've seen this universal nature of straight narratives forever. So the idea that a person can't relate to something because it's not directly about them is a misunderstanding of who's been reading books this whole time. I mean, I certainly grew up on all straight white narratives. Like that was everything that I read in the canon, everything that I read in high school, grade school, all that was straight white narratives. And the idea that I was just like, I don't get it. You know, I just don't get it. I just can't really relate to it. You know, it's like, I certainly related to it. That doesn't mean that that's okay to just have one narrative. My name is Mariko Tomaki and I am a modern minority.
2: Welcome to Modern Minorities.
0: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
2: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
0: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. On today's show, we're talking to Mariko Tamaki, award-winning Canadian artist and writer. She's known for her graphic novels like Skim and This One Summer with her cousin Jillian, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, Amiko Superstar, and several prose works of fiction and nonfiction. In 2016, she actually began writing for both Marvel and DC Comics, most recently including powerful books like I Am Not Starfire and mainstream books like Detective Comics, where she is the second woman to write the thousand-issue flagship DC series about the Dark Knight. Mariko also recently co-founded Shirley, a graphic novel imprint by Abrams Press that features stories by LGBTQIA plus creators, whose first two books are Lifetime Passes by Terry Blass and Claudia Aguirre, and Flung Out of Space, inspired by the indecent adventures of Patricia Highsmith by Grace Ellis. And if that weren't enough, Mariko just released her latest prose novel, Cold, a haunting YA novel about a shocking homicide in a quiet town and four students who knew too much. I've been such a fan of Marco for too long. Probably my fanboyness is exuding out of this episode, but she's so cool (laughs) and so rad. And Sharon, you're starting to meet like all of my comic favorites. This is probably the last episode of Modern Minorities because I've talked to everyone. We've had the privilege of getting to talk to these amazing creators that I love. I I don't know, I hate to bias you, but what'd you think?
2: I have to say this by far was the biggest Raman fanboy episode I've sat in. Oh,
0: come on. Jean Lu Yang, Andrew <laughs> Iden, like Mira Jacob. I was fanboying I, then. Yeah, definitely fanboyed on
2: those. This one, I think, surpassed them all from the perspective of Mariko herself just being so awesome. Not that those guys are not awesome. Those guys are also <laughs> Watch very, work, very, Sharon. very awesome. But I think how, the reason why I felt very connected to this fanboyness was because she didn't grow up loving comic books. So it's not like, like I feel like some of the other folks we've talked to that are have done amazing things in the graphic novel space have always been Comic-Con type of attendees, right? Mariko, on the other hand, was creating stories that happened to have graphics attached to those. And through that path has landed in literally comic book royalty. Like, I mean, when I think about everything she's accomplished, she's at the very top of the food chain with... All of the awards she's run, all of the books that she's written, and the fact that she started her own thing right now. And that was really inspiring to me because I think as someone who's stumbled into this just by way of you, Ramin, I'm like, oh, so there's like, I can actually transport into this what feels like an alien universe to me sometimes and teach myself about you know, the relationship between the Dark Knight and all of the iterations of the Joker or like whatever, whatever the heck you guys know about that I feel like I'm constantly trying to learn. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's mastered all of that. And she was just amazing to talk to. She's got a great way that she's bringing her work into the world and making a really wonderful impact for others as she paves the way for future voices and really creating a platform for diversity, especially in the LGBTQIA community.
0: Yeah. And so much of her work is about evoking a feeling and showing experiences that we have in common and that we don't. And we'll put a ton of links in the show notes to some of her work that you should check out, but also some of the fellow creators that she partners with, be it her partner or her cousin, other folks in the new Shirley imprint. So get ready for just a really fun and just thoughtful and just pleasant conversation with our new friend, Mariko. Marco, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Marco, I will try not to be a fanboy on this podcast, but you are very <laughs> famous among nerds of the comic persuasion like me. <laughs> the nerds but-
1: know me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sharon knows you too now because I've been talking about you for so long. But I guess what we really want to know first is where are you from?
1: Where am I from? I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, yes. I live there for most of my life. And actually, my family, I think I am third generation. So I'm really from Canada.
2: And when you answer that, way, do people ever say, well, where are you really from, though? Because Merico doesn't sound like a Canadian name.
1: Well, and that's the <laughs> thing. I think because of the name, I feel like that gives people a sort of what feels like a easier in to asking me about my nationality because of, or my racial background because of my name. So it's like, they're not asking anything about me. They're asking about my name. So I get that a lot.
0: What was that like? I mean, in Canada, I mean, if you're from Toronto, there are probably more Asians in Toronto, than there are <laughs> and, but what was that like as a kid growing up kind of in between multiple cultures, third generation, Canadian, Japanese heritage? I mean,
1: so there's two parts of it. One is that I really did not for most of my life understand that anything about race and anything about race that applied to me, I just thought I was different. I didn't think of it in terms of racial terms. Like I thought my dad looked different because my dad is Japanese. I thought my dad looked different than some of the other dads that I knew. And especially in my public school days, I was in a mostly white public school. There were certainly other sort of BIPOC kids, but it was mostly white and so for most of my life, it wasn't a thing because I didn't know it was a thing. I think it was, I don't remember the exact conversation, but I was pretty young when my family was like, your dad is Japanese.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember I had a friend who told me once, I can't understand your dad. And that was the first moment I realized my dad had an accent, but I was uh, like 10 or something. When right, that.
1: because. I mean, why would you, right? right? Like my dad was also, I mean, first of all, I'm, my mom is white and my dad is Japanese. So it wasn't like, wasn't like there was a sort of solid, uh, solid sort of sense of race in the family. And it just wasn't a thing like my dad and my understanding of Japanese Canadian people in general is that it's not like a big talking, like let's talk about this thing, culture or it wasn't in my family. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, we eat rice more than other people. We use yeah. chopsticks, yeah. you know, but it wasn't, I think one of the earlier conversations that I had was I had a friend when I was in grade school, who was like, my dad said, your dad only got his job because, because I think my dad became partner at this law firm. Mm. And she said, your dad only got his job because he's Japanese. And I was like, "Say what now? Yeah, <laughs> like, what does yeah. that even mean?" Yeah. Like, I was so blissfully unaware. Like, I don't even think it occurred to me to be pissed off because I was just like, "I don't even know what that."
0: Ugh. That doesn't make sense. Does not <laughs> yeah, compute, that right?
1: doesn't
2: make sense. He's just yeah, my dad, right? What?
1: Yeah, he's just yeah. my dad, and he's super smart. So I don't really know what that's about. But I remember my mom being really pissed off when I told her. Yeah, so that's, that's
2: pretty offensive.
1: It's incredibly offensive. Yeah. yeah, but it was very slow things. And I think my mom was sort of at sea a little bit because I don't think she a hundred percent. I think the sort of general consensus when I was a kid was just don't make it a big deal Mm -hmm. and it won't be a big deal. Not like there's a way to think about this as not that it's a big deal or not that it's not a big deal. Right. Like there's something else to be considered there.
2: Totally. Totally. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Oh, gosh, I probably wanted to be a writer, but I did not think that that was a real job. Yeah. So Why not? Mean- <laughs> did you not think
2: that? Or did someone tell you that?
1: <laughs> I just didn't. I didn't know anybody who was a writer, you know, mm, like I knew yeah. people who were Lawyer. I knew a lot of lawyers. A lot of people in my family are lawyers. So that seemed to be the job, but I did not want to be a lawyer because it didn't look like a ton of fun, especially because my dad's a tax lawyer. <laughs> so You know, argued
0: by many as the most fun kind of lawyer. Yeah.
1: I mean, I liked his mechanical pencils, but other than that, I was like, this does not look <laughs> oh, like- Oh my, cool really? real My daughter
0: is like stealing and upset who's six is like, obsessed with my mechanical pencils and will not they're stop stealing very them cool they're, they're so cool. cool i'm still
2: obsessed with them whenever yeah. i have one i i like to I, I like to get all the lead out and then put it back in oh
1: and it's like a game yeah. right trying yeah. to pull it
0: all out 100
1: yeah. right. <laughs> yes so i didn't really think of it i think i just thought i would at some point get a job and i went to university with the sort of goals of you know wanting to learn more like wanting to sort of do more sort of study of literature and stuff like that. But I thought, I guess, maybe at some point I would be a teacher or something. It never Mm -hmm. occurred to me that it would be like artist.
0: Where did did your mom and dad fit into the equation of that? Like when the aspiration to be a writer, was that a revealed thing? Was there the kind of classic Asian American, well, you probably should go do this instead.
1: Actually, my parents have been just... like immeasurably supportive. Hmm. Actually just put in the acknowledgments of my last book that the reason that I was able to be a writer is because my parents paid my rent for years. Wow. Like long after the sort of you know status quo is for like yeah. you have to Socially be sort
2: acceptable. Of... Yes.
1: Within like <laughs> certainly within our community, right. my parents were incredibly supportive. I think that they were not sure how it was going to be a job either. Like I think at some point after university, when I started doing other jobs and started doing other things, but it wasn't like sort of career more oriented, but Mm -hmm. I was definitely writing all the time. Mm
0: -hmm. They saw you were putting in the hours. Yeah.
1: They were just like, just let her, Oh my God, whatever this is going to be, just let her do that thing. And they're, you know, they're, they're big fans, you know? So I mean, although my dad, (laughs) my dad said to me, like your mom has a shrine to you in her study. And I was like, what? I was like, that sounds weird. And I went and looked at it and it's just all my books. That's amazing. I was like, dad, that's not a shrine. That's just like my books. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally
0: normal. (laughs) I I have to ask, and we'll dive into this a little bit later, but one thing, obviously you have done an amazing body of work and some of the stuff that puts you on the map, or at least in in my world, but you wound up writing and winning some awards for books you wrote. And mm-hmm. cre- so you created with your cousin. So the yes. real question is, when did the story with your cousin happen? Like, I mean, you guys obviously were friends as kids. Did you start no, really. off and doing something together? Like- yeah, we
1: really weren't friends as kids, actually. I mean, she was my cousin and yeah. I have always loved her, obviously. But she grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and I grew yeah. up in Toronto. And so we really never hung out except for weddings and funerals mm-hmm. for our whole lives until she went to university. And then I think I saw her maybe one when- or two more times, like I think we went to go see like Girl Interrupted together or something, mm-hmm. but I knew she was an artist. And so really a lot of our friendship evolved around the work. me getting this opportunity to make a graphic novel from this literary magazine in Canada called Kiss Machine.
0: Yeah. And
1: I said like, I knew that she was an artist and I thought her work was, was unbelievably good. I didn't know that we would be able to make like comics together for the next couple of decades. <laughs> but I was like, my cousin is really amazing. And I think that she would be really good at comics if I could do a comic with her. Like, I basically just sort of, like, offered us up for the job with really very little sense of, like, that that was even something that Jillian wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was. And then, so a lot of our friendship comes from the fact that we've worked together for all these years.
0: You know, there's, I've, I've long held this belief. It was back in the day when, you know. We were younger and we all had roommates is you want to be a roommate or a collaborator, not with your like BFF, but someone, you know, and you kind of trust their values and their approach to stuff. And then over by the course of like living with them or doing the work, a deeper friendship will form. And I just watching so much of the the, the few, and you've done so many other things without her, but, and, and to be clear, all of those are very personal, and very beautiful as well. But the things you've done with her, there's just like the sense of some familial familiarity that this, These kind of like deep unspoken truths between best friends or between cousins or siblings. It's just, I, I don't know what the question is there, but it's just, well, have you found that? Have you found like the more you've worked together, the closer you've become?
1: I mean Jillian and I have very similar dads Mm -hmm. well because they're brothers but there's you know a sort of Japanese Canadian sense of humor which is a very dry sense of humor that we definitely share and I think that there's a sensibility and sort of a sense of how we like to work together that we share and it's yeah I mean it's just very special because of just because of who she is and who I am I guess um to to be able to work with her. And I think, especially in our second book where we had already worked together and we'd had all these experiences together from that, mm. you know, it's an incredibly rare thing to be able to work with a member of your family on a book. Yeah. So I think that we're incredibly unique that way. But I will say I've had a lot of different collaborations. Mm-hmm. I think the main thing is that however you sort of put two people together, three or four, you personally have to be a person who is good and wants to work with other people yeah like and then that combination pans out in different ways, but it's really on you to be a good person to work with
2: mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I find interesting about that dynamic, right? Sometimes working with family members can be a beautiful thing, and it it definitely has been for you. and at on the same at the same time, working with family can sometimes create a lot of friction because oh, for sure, yeah, because of that <laughs> dynamic. Imagine. And I'm just curious, I mean, not to like, you know, spill the tea in any terrible way, but What are some moments where
0: did you just say spill the tea? Is that like an Asian thing? I did. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But like white people say spill the beans and now we're all supposed to say spill the beans.
2: But were there moments when you were developing any of your work where the two of you were like, no, I, I just don't agree with that or I don't remember that experience that way, or I don't want to represent it that way, and how how that plays out between the two of you?
1: I think the one thing is that we were never under the impression that this was the only way that we were going to work in comics Mm. like I think it was pretty clear that Jillian as a person who is a writer and an illustrator in her own right was always going to do other books and I think that it's a lot to ask of a creator to only do things together and so I think one thing that's benefited our creative relationship together is that There's never any sense that we have to do another book together Mm -hmm. and there's never any sense that we have to do anything other than what we want to do together. There is a little bit of pressure, right? Like when something is successful, publishers always want to do another version immediately. And I think we've always stepped back after, after whatever we've done, no matter how successful it is to just like think about, who we are individually as artists. But yeah, I mean on a daily basis, there's moments where we'll disagree about things. But I think we also have a very tamaki way of disagreeing, which is, not what is heated. Ex- Explain, <laughs> explain tamaki way of disagreeing. Yeah. I love that. It's just like <laughs> I, I think this well I think this. And it's just like how much do you care about this? <laughs> like right. but I also like in the situation with comics, especially because the manifestation on the page is being is being achieved by the artist. Like I feel like I have like also just endless faith in in Jillian's vision as well. So I don't think there's ever been a situation where I was like, I don't necessarily agree with how you're doing this. Sometimes there's things that get cut that I was like, I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> just like, no. Okay. Well, I thought that was funny. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then I just keep it for myself. I'm like, well, that's mine. I'm going to use that somewhere else. I thought that was funny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> It'll make it in the director's cut or the a- like, editor's cut. Yeah, at the yeah, I'll put it yeah. in something
1: else. Yeah. So then there's these weird girl jokes in Batman. (laughs) You're like, what's that doing there?
0: (laughs) I'm not familiar with uh, Mariko putting that in. And all of a sudden it shows up when you have more control and detective or something like that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. It's like, I almost, you know, over Thanksgiving last year, I binged the the Beatles documentary and watching these kind of effectively four brothers collaborating and coming together and falling apart. Mm -hmm. And you almost wonder if, man, if those guys... Had just made like if Paul had just started making his own albums in between Beatles albums, maybe they would have lasted longer because you can kind of go back to the well or you can get your inspiration from other places versus like kept kind of being on top of each other all the time.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean that documentary was really fascinating to watch, but I do think the creative process like it's always this battle between your individual sensibilities as an artist and especially when you work in a group, which is most Mm -hmm. art is not made alone. Mm -hmm. Most Mm -hmm. art is made in a room of people Mm -hmm. or is made with you and somebody else at least. And especially, you know, like if you work in theater, if you work in television, if you work in, you know, there's so many other mediums where you have to work with someone else. And it's hard to be that person
0: sometimes. So everything you write, I, I just even though I know you were writing and you were projecting your own experiences and your thoughts into these other characters, but the writing always feels so real. And it feels like there's so much of it that's coming out of your own experiences, your own perceptions of the world. Sometimes when I'm reading your work, I'm like, which one is she? Which hmm. part of her elements are coming in it? And some of some what you write, a lot of what you write, but not only what you write, is about queer identity. Can you talk about, have you always chosen to put that directly in your work? Or was it kind of like, at some point you just felt comfortable enough to start making your work more overtly telling these stories?
1: Um, Well, I think my journey as a queer artist was largely molded by the fact that I came up as an artist in my 20s in Toronto, where there was a very strong community of queer artists there. So I grew up making art, doing sort of spoken word events, doing sort of theatrical cabaret things for queer audiences. And that's really where I developed my voice was for queer audiences. Mm, So mm. the idea, so I think it's like, when you have a sense that your audience is queer, it's a given that that's what you're going to talk about as a queer person. Mm. Or you certainly have a very strong sense that that's okay, that there's not anything that you have to translate or Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, sort mm -hmm, of take mm -hmm, out or edit out because it's not going to read to a non-queer audience. So I think because that was... I mean, it was always shocking to me to find out that anybody I didn't know was going to read my books. Like I really (laughs) thought for the longest time that it was just going to be my friends. And I was so comfortable with that audience that I just always wrote to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that has carried through. Like I certainly now, you know, I think that as an artist, you're constantly trying to grow and, and develop different skills. And so, I mean, obviously, when I write Batman comics, Batman is not me. And I know how to sort of infuse. Oh, really? Mariko, we're I all mind. Batman.
0: Let's be Yeah, clear. we're everybody's Bruce Wayne.
1: But I think that, you know, the sort of core of it, it was always that experience. It was yeah. a lot of writing that I grew up with was much more sort of memoir oriented and confessional poetry mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that's where I started out. And then, I think the first book that I wrote was very confessional and was very true to my life and my mom read it and my mom was like, this is me. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm not going to do that again. (laughs) Let's let's fictionalize this next one so that, so that it feels a little farther away from the people that I know. Well,
0: Mm -hmm. so much of your work is, and I say this as someone who is straight and non-queer, like I don't read it as, oh, these are queer narratives, but it's almost like, unassuming and unapologetically well this is who we are and we're not going to overtly explain it to you this is just kind of the way the world is and just kind of like uh, you know I was talking to you earlier I finally this morning finished like I think I finished my Tamaki verse kind of reading by finally picking up Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me and it's a story about love you know other stories are about sisterhood and being teenagers and it it is authentically a queer narrative but it it isn't it's not and that's the beautiful thing it doesn't have to be it's just this is a story. And these are these characters.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, the sort of, we've assumed the sort of universal nature of straight narratives forever. (laughs) So the idea that that a person can't relate to something because it's not directly about them is like a misunderstanding of who's been reading books this whole time. I mean, (laughs) I certainly grew up on all straight white narratives. Like that was everything that I read in the canon, everything that I read, you know, in high school grade school all that was straight white narratives and the idea that i was just like i don't get it you know i just don't get it Mm. i just can't really relate to it Mm. yeah you know it's like i certainly related to you know there were things that i like that doesn't mean that that's okay to just have one narrative but like it wasn't that i didn't relate to lord of the flies
0: right right right. it's interesting because and it's so fresh in my mind because as i mentioned like for some reason I didn't realize you wrote Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. And every time I would see that book on the library shelf, I was just like, that's such a cool name. I gotta read it at some point. And in prepping, I was like, Oh shit, she wrote that. So I quickly read it this morning and it's so fresh in my mind. And I don't we don't necessarily have to like talk about it specifically, but it emotionally really affected me this morning because I was like, Yeah, that's what being love and hurt and broken in love and having a broken heart like felt like it triggered so many like teenage memories in me. <laughs> And I had to be like, oh, wait, I, I'm a happily married person. I'm a father now, but like, like, I'm in my forties
2: now. Yeah, I I am.
0: (laughs) But I was so transported to that, like raw visceral moment of my life. And even though the main character is queer and, and it just, it's almost, it's kind of like what we try to do with this pod. It's like, we have a lot of things in common and we have a lot of differences, but here's, it is what it is. This is the world as it stands today. Let's just tell a great story with a great kind of through line and a narrative. So I don't know. Yeah, thanks. I think you
1: can celebrate specifics, right? Like, yeah. and I think that that is really ultimately what diversity in any kind of form is about, is about getting into the specifics of any life and understanding that those specifics have to do with race and gender and sexuality and class and all of these things. Like there is the sort of baseline, like everyone can say all stories are the same, right? Like there's three different stories and you sort of put different clothes on them, but they're all the same story. But yes, and then the real, the real life of a story is in all of these details that maybe you didn't grow up with, but like that someone else did. And those details should be interesting to you, even if you didn't grow up with them.
0: Yeah, 1,000%.
2: And a lot of your work right now is superheroes and comic characters that many many of us grew up with. You've made it. (laughs) You've made it. Did you grow up really loving Batman and, and all of that stuff too? Or did you find yourself here because of your graphic novel journey?
1: Yeah, I did not grow up with superheroes. Actually, I have a very close friend who every time we talk about the Batman stuff I'm doing, he talks about the sort of pillowcase he had, the Batman pillowcase he has as a kid. <laughs> and I'm like, I did not have that pillowcase. Right. I had like a pastel pillowcase. But the thing that I did grow up on was definitely the movies. And I was mm-hmm. a huge Batman movie fan, like for all the iterations of Batman. Even Joel movies. Schumacher? yeah oh listen Joel Schumacher he's the he ice man right yeah all of that stuff doc, Dr. Freeze Mr. Freeze I there's like the, the
0: white like all the comics the doctor
1: yeah so <laughs> this is the problem Iceman. whenever I write whenever I talk about whenever I talk about comics I am so bad with names I like know 100% who I'm talking about but then I'm like and my editor sometimes. Yeah, I was like, about That's... to say your
0: editors about uh, something. Iceman's from Marvel. Margo? Yeah, they're like, there right. That's
1: not Iceman. I'm like, you know who I'm talking about? But the guy at the helmet. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. So and then fans are the like, Red what? Hood. Yeah, she doesn't know who she's talking about. It's like I do. I'm just so bad with names. I mean, don't remember. I got Mariko.
0: It's, talk... it's one thing to be bad with names of like I can't remember that editor that I met, but like pop culture characters that I. Got. She's like, That's you
2: know, a- it's that guy with the cape, that guy.
1: <laughs> it's all the same to me, honestly. It's the like, exactly. I don't remember it's so my amazing. own character's name sometimes. <laughs> like the first time I watched Game of Thrones, which was the Jonathan Van Ness Game of Thrones, I was like, I 100% relate to that because he loves this show and he doesn't have any of the characters' names. He just calls it like, you know, like everyday, with the, whatever. Yeah. everyday bleach job, like whatever <laughs> you want to call it. It's fucking great. I love that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're learning as you're doing.
0: I love it. I love Here's it. Here's what I love about it. I've read a lot of your work in Detective. I read the Harley and the Ivy stuff. I'm not Starfire, even some of your Marvel stuff. But what I love about it is you're bringing this sensibility. Like, I mean, I- I've walked away from superhero comics for the most part in pursuit of like enjoying indie stuff. But you're bringing the sensibility that's not mired in the continuity and the lore and the history. And as a reader, I love that. Like I picked up I Am Not Starfire, not because I grew up on the Teen Titans and I love the Teen Titans, I do, but because I was like, oh, shit, Mariko Tamaki, who I love from Skim, etc. this one summer, is writing a book about Starfire. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> but now I actually want to pivot to kind of the work that you're doing today, not just as a creator, but as an editor.
2: So Mariko, you've, you've started a whole new thing. That's yes. pretty different and innovative. And I think it's just so fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired Shirley and, and the mission that you are trying to deliver with it?
1: Uh, so my girlfriend <laughs> basically came up with this idea because I have been working in comics for a while. And we were talking about sort of, you know, there is a constant need to expand who is putting comics out. It's really a question of how do you get Resources, publishing resources to more people and more opportunities to more people. And so my girlfriend was like, You should do an imprint. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And she was like, Yeah, but I think you would really enjoy it. And I think you could be good at it. And I was working with Abrams on this Lumberjane series, which is just an incredible comic book series that we were doing in prose with Abrams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I asked them if they would be interested in doing. LBGTQIA plus imprint that was just LBGTQIA creators, but with no other real mandate in terms of the kinds of books that we would be doing.
0: Mm -hmm. So cross genre can be literally anything.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they were super into it. They've been incredibly supportive this whole time. So myself and Charlotte Greenbaum, who's the editor there, and I basically have been spending the last couple of years curating really just books by queer creators. And it's been really amazing to see the different kinds of stories, especially sort of going from younger creators and what stories different people want to tell. We have our first book that came out was Lifetime Passes by Terry Blass and Claudia Aguirre, which is about these kids who are obsessed with this theme park. And then they find out that they might not be able to afford their lifetime passes anymore. So they hatch on this plan. They find out that the theme park has a policy that if anybody dies in the park, Everybody who's in that person's party gets free lifetime passes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of the kids <laughs> has a aunt that works at a seniors home, so she basically starts bringing seniors to. <laughs> it's
0: very dark. Well, it's and this really is the thing: is it dark comedy? Then, I, I don't know if I should be laughing, but it. Yeah. Well, anyway. it
1: is. It's very. It's a very sweet and funny book, which is mm-hmm. kind of um, deceptive. But I think the thing about it that works so well is that it really is a book about intergenerational mm-hmm. relationships. It's a book about feeling lost and the main character's parents have been deported out of the United States. And so she's feeling really alone. So it has this really sort of like hard candy coating of this premise, but inside is this really very sweet narrative mm-hmm. about this this girl's relationship with the people at the senior citizens facility. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of the characters are just so bold and beautiful and just like incredible stories. And it's amazing because it was our first book out and I love that it wasn't like a coming out story or anything, mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm, a book mm-hmm, that right. really the sort of mainstay of what makes it a queer book is that it's written by queer people. Yeah. So that was really amazing. And and then our next book is by Grace Ellis and Hannah Templar, and it's called Flung Out of Space. And it's the story of Patricia Highsmith who is a sort of very complicated Queer icon. Yeah, no, it's almost no, like a historical fiction, icon. right? Yeah, I mean, it's inspired by the story yeah, of Patricia Smith, yeah, yeah. but really, it's sort of looking at a person who is a really hard person to like consider any kind of like like she's not a person who personally you would consider any kind of role model in the queer community because she had really horrible beliefs and really horrible views of really anybody who wasn't white. But at the same time. She created this thing that is really a seminal work for the queer community. So, or not some like really groundbreaking work of queer literature. So it's, it's really been an interesting opportunity to support queer artists and to see sort of all the different places that queer artists have gone yeah, or want to go yeah. in literature
0: these days. Well, what made me so excited when, you know, I started reading the press about Shirley was one, the mission itself. But two, you know, it's interesting seeing how you're using your powers for good, not just in your writing now, but you're kind of using your influence in the market to help create things. So so there will be thousands of Mariko Tamakis right? <laughs> like out there. And I think that's it's like the old startup attitude, Like you're thinking for scale, right? Yeah. And that's really cool. I love that. And I guess the question I really want to ask though is You're transitioning to being a curator and an editor from being a writer. What's that's a very different skill set and a different approach. How what have the differences been that you found so far?
1: It is a very different skill set. And I'm still kind of figuring it out, to be honest. Like I don't think I think the thing is, is I know what has been really incredible for me as a writer, like in terms of what kind of editorial support has really helped me. I think I was talking with somebody else recently about how. The thing about any kind of creative process is there's the idea and then there's the actual sort of work that goes into making that idea into a book specifically, which is really a process of revision, which is not fun. It's super fun to have an idea and talk about it with your friends and say, you're going to write this book and you have this great idea, but then actually manifesting that means like writing that idea down on a bunch of pages and having someone read it and say, some of this is working and some of this is not working. And that can be a very... Deadening process, and yeah, really but it was. Sort of.
0: But you know, at the same time, it's like. But Mariko Tamaki's telling me that it's not well, Jim Shooter.
1: <laughs> but the but thing in some ways,
2: that's like even more like right, more painful.
1: <laughs> well, but I think the goal is, and some of my favorite editors, or some of the best editors that I've worked with, name, have made names, that name process. Names. Oh, I mean, I think uh, my, my first editor that I ever worked with was Anne Dechter, who's a Canadian editor for this first small press that I wrote for. And then, yeah, Connie Sue, who I just worked with on my last book, Cold. Mm. But I think that editor's job is to make that process of, of reworking an idea seem full of possibilities mm. and seem like less effort and more like enjoyment. Like, you know, it's to make that process of just like talking about the world you're building fun. And if you can do that, I think that it makes the idea of sort of going back into the abyss and like fixing the things that need to be fixed a little easier. It's almost like a player coach. Yeah, it's very coachy. So I think that's the best situation. And also like part of it is to pick projects where you are the editor that they need for that project. Cause there's some people who need very little editorial assistance. And then there's some people who maybe don't need you.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think it almost like a musician's choice to like when a band. Oh, sure. Like wants a producer. To to the producer, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
2: And I'm kind of thinking of it from a, from like an entrepreneurship venture investment perspective, like you are, that's exactly what you're doing. Right. You're incubating these great ideas and investing your own expertise and capital quote unquote time, time and energy, time yeah. resources experience to help that that idea grow.
0: absolutely. yeah
1: I think of it as like you're just giving the writer like a really comfortable couch with like all the snacks that they need. <laughs>
0: yeah and like
1: all of like the pillows are where they need to be and it's like all the stuff and it's just gonna be really comfy and they don't feel bad. they feel good they feel like this is gonna be not horrible. So yeah. that's how I think. You of should it. put that on the
0: Shirley submission application page. It's like a couch. Yeah. It's it's like like a couch. A, we got, <laughs> we got snacks. We got snacks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so exactly. many
0: snacks
2: and like yeah. a two hour nap if I needed it, Just anything, anything to get my work done. So you mentioned Heather a little bit in terms of starting Shirley and, and working with Heather on that. What has Heather's influence been on some of those decisions and her impact on your life?
1: Oh, my God. My girlfriend, Heather, who is also just an incredible artist and creator in her own right, has been, oh, my God, just an immeasurable influence. I think that she has been a person who, I mean, I think it's a really incredible thing to have an artist as your partner because it really lets you live in this world of digging into that all the time. Like we're constantly talking about the things that are inspirations to us. She's definitely brought inspirations to me. And I think that a lot of the things that have been important to us as a couple have certainly spread into the things that I want to talk more about. Like I come from a family of like not always talking about your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and so my progress as a lesbian has been to be talking more and more about my feelings every day of my life. I and find I think,
0: that hard to, it's funny I because you put it in your writing, maybe it's more indirect in your writing though.
1: Yes, I mean,
0: okay.
1: it's a lot of abbreviations, I think uh, in my writing, but yeah, I think actually having a partner who understands the language that you're speaking and is always encouraging you to sort of develop that language more is just an incredible thing and yes. Her name is Heather Gold. She is also an artist. You can look up her website. Yeah, she's amazing.
0: Yeah, no, I'll, we'll absolutely put some links in the show notes because it's funny. I didn't know much about her until I started preparing for, wow, I'm actually talking to you. And we found her name showing up so much as kind of truly a partner. And like, that's the important thing, like having a partner who kind of pushes you to do more to get outside of your comfort zone. That's, and she's
2: doing it with you. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, it's so yeah, beautiful. To I mean, see. I
1: think we just... Like, even just to be able to talk about the things that you're doing, mm-hmm. just to be able to go off and have someone who just isn't going to say, like, oh, that sounds great. Like, yeah. you know, you're like, <laughs> no, but like, what else do you have to say? I know it sounds <laughs> great. <laughs> Me.
0: Someone who can call you on your bad habits. Yeah.
1: My last book, Cold, came out a couple of days ago. Yeah. And I posted the book cover, but I also posted the acknowledgments because I do think that it's sort of this thing that's buried in the back of the book, but it's an incredibly important thing. Like you can think of it as like your graduation speech of like, here's all the people who are important to me. But it really illustrates for me there are so many people involved in the life and the creative process of an artist. And I have, in addition to my incredible partner, who is obviously a person who is really important to me that they, they read in and like, I'm able to talk to them about my work, but I also have a community of artists. And for me, especially as a queer artist to have queer artists, to have other BIPOC artists that I can talk to about what I'm doing, about the things that I'm struggling with. Like Mm -hmm. that is, it's, it really, you know, it takes a lot of people just make that. And I also like credit my therapists because I was like, I think people should know how stressful this is. So I thanked my therapists as well.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I saw the release of cold come out and it's, I I tend to read more comics than novels, but the Tamaki cinematic universe, like I'm all in it's like, it's like 40, (laughs) you know, it's literally on its way. And it's, I love that you just have this versatile take in not just in the medium, isn't comics, the medium is kind of fiction creation that you've been in, you know, as a writer, as almost a performer, as a comics creator as a comics collaborator and editor so it's just well
1: And to what we were talking about earlier i think i think that there's a sort of misconception about being a working artist which means that you sort of pick the thing that you want to do and you do that like Mm -hmm. i think especially when it comes to novelists there's this kind of vision that you can have as a younger person that it's just going to be you and you're going to write your novel and you're going to go off to your cottage but all those things cost money like it costs money to go off and be in your cottage in the middle now of you sound just, like
0: an asian parent yeah oh <laughs> my god
1: well but it's true and i think that one of the things that i realized when i first started writing was that i was going to have to be able to do a lot of things like mm. i have written for creative agencies i've written about companies i've written mm. powerpoint presentations about data i've written plays i've written comics like i think that especially also growing up in Toronto there was always worlds of different creative people were always blending together. So I started working in theater, but then working in theater was how I got into doing stand-up comedy because there was a person who who also did stand-up for various cabarets, who started a class. So the idea that you would be sort of sticking to one thing was just never really, I mean, A, it doesn't make financial sense. If you're, especially as a young writer, you do whatever it is that doesn't destroy your soul and will make you rent.
0: Well, it's it's almost the kind of like Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, right? It's like, it's still all serving a purpose of creating voices and stories.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's a muscle for sure. You have to keep using it. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think that being able to, I think the other thing is that I've always been the sort of new person in the room. Like I've always been the person who just got there and first discovered something. Like Mm -hmm, even in mm -hmm. comics, when I, published my first graphic novel, Skim with Jillian, and we went to this comic place. I was like, I don't really know anything about you guys, but this looks great. (laughs) I was like, I've never, they were like, did you grow up reading this stuff? I was like, no, but like, tell me more. But it made me very proactive in finding out as much as I could and going out and reading as many books. And I didn't have one favorite because I was so new to it. So I tried to read everything. And I think that it has kind of kept me, I don't ever... And I think that this has to do with my specific Japanese Canadian dad, not everybody's Japanese Canadian dad, but mine <laughs> is that there was always a sense in my house of like, that no one is an expert on things. Yeah. Like if yeah. you asked my dad about anything to do with his job, he would be very reticent to be like, I am the authority on this thing. He would say he knows what he knows. Mm. And I think that that has very much permeated my approach to my career, which is, I don't think that it, behooves anybody to feel like they're the best or they know the most about a thing. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Anyone who claims they have all the answers is probably lying, to be clear. Yeah.
1: yeah, (laughs) Um, It's like anytime someone's like, well, I've been working in this industry for a long time. I'm like, and I don't know if I want to talk to you. (laughs) That already doesn't sound like much fun.
0: So Marco, if we could talk to that little girl who's talking to her lawyerly dad, What advice would you tell Younger Mariko?
1: I would tell Younger Mariko what I've told most young writers that I've encountered, which is that the main thing is to keep writing and to write through the things, like write into the things that are hard and to as much as you can try to write through whatever doubt you have that what you have isn't good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a really great Ira Glass quote where he said, the problem is that you know what is good before you are good. So as you get into something, especially for example, writing, you read all this good stuff. So you get a sense of, oh, this is what good writing is. And then you look at your writing and you're like, I am not a good writer. Hmm. (laughs) So it's like, you have to let that part of you catch up. It takes time. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you keep at it, you will become good in the way that you need to be good.
2: You will be writing about superheroes and establishing your own publishing arm and (laughs) many many other things.
1: Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Exactly. (laughs) That's
2: great. Well, we've covered so, so much, and we have a very special speed round planned for you. Ready
1: for speed round, Mariko? I'm ready for speed round.
2: What is something about you that no one expects?
1: That I never want to go out. (laughs)
0: Has that changed much in the last couple of years? Because I want to go out less too.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: I don't want to leave the house at all ever. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I think my my intense lack of socialness and my hatred of parties is, well, anyone who knows me is not surprised, but I think sometimes people who meet me are shocked that I'm just like, oh, no.
0: (laughs) kind of have to ask, as someone who's been coming at the comic industry from a very different way, what are some comics or comic creators that have characters uh, that you really relate to? Oh, gosh.
1: I really love the way Gene Yang writes his characters. I think that there's a thing that he captures, especially in younger characters, Yeah, that I really relate to and I really love and it makes me happy every time I read it.
0: You are like speaking my language. I kid you not, being able to literally, I'm done with this podcast because I've got to talk to Gene Yang and you now, like, and a couple of other <laughs> comics creators, but like, He's yeah, shut it down. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Like, done. But it, there is this, it, it all comes down to character for me. And he has this like simplicity that kind of tricks you <laughs> sometimes. Yeah.
1: No, I just love his stuff. It's funny because I got to know Gene since moving to the East Bay, and he's just an incredibly lovely, nerdy guy, which is good because he has like all the awards. And so every once in a while, you're like, "Hey, (laughs) do you ever think about the fact that you have all the awards?" (laughs) I don't think he does, which is great. Yeah,
0: he's like the cool uncle, even though he's like our age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's very cool. I I want to ask another question because you're Canadian. I feel like there's just so many amazing Canadian creators, right? You go back and, you know, look at like oh. Mr. Brown and Seth, but then you have like you and, and Jeff Lemire, who are the Canadian creators that we all know about that you love, but also who are the up and comers that, that are creating things that you really love?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, one of my favorite comic creators, obviously, aside from the people that I'm related to, which would include (laughs) Jillian Tamaki and her sister Lauren Tamaki, Mm -hmm. who is very much an up-and-coming comics creator, who is someone who, if you follow her on Instagram, you can see she's an incredible artist. And she Mm -hmm. has, she is definitely someone to watch as she does more and more book work. Kate Beaton is a, I mean, Kate Beaton is an up-and-coming, but I'm a huge fan of Kate Beaton. I'm trying to think of specifically Canadian comics creators Oh, man. Lee Lai. Lee Lai is an incredible comics creator. Their book, Stone Fruit, made me cry. It is. Yeah. And so that is a person that people should be watching for. And Hiromi Goto, who did an incredible comic. And you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, And Hiromi Goto did a book called Shadow Life, which is the most amazing, sweetest comic about this like, old Japanese lady who's fighting off the
0: shadow demons. Yeah. yeah I shadow demons it like a month ago. Yeah, yeah.
1: Hilarious and so sweet. And Hiromi is such an incredible writer who I've known about for a long time, but I think she's going to be new to comics people.
0: Marco. I normally, I totally do this with all the comics creators we talk to, but also the comic geek guests that we have on my other comic book podcast, quarantine comics. Like we literally just find great books and read them and geek out about them. So uh shadow life has been on my list to get Ryan to read. So maybe that's one. When... it's
1: so good. It's yeah. so, so good. Yeah. Stone Fruit and Shadow Life were two of my big reads from last year. And they were definitely the things that, like, very much stuck with me.
2: I want to read Stone Fruit. I feel like I've heard so much about it and I'm like not in the, into the comic oh,
1: world. It's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful book about, she it just really captures this idea of sort of imagination and youth.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and family drama. So
1: good. And the not so good, but yeah, absolutely. And family stuff. Yeah, for sure. Oh, the, all, all the good things. Yeah.
2: It's <laughs> great. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Oh, I mean, I grew up with my mom making chow mein, Mm-hmm. with the brown noodles. So that was definitely a big favorite. But really, and actually I just saw my parents for the first time in two years this past Christmas and my mom makes the mm. most amazing stuffing in the world for turkey dinners. Yeah, Everyone else can try. <laughs> I think my mom puts like two pounds of butter in it and that's why it tastes so good. But <laughs> only my mom makes the best stuffing and my mom makes the best stuffing.
0: That's amazing.
1: It sounds great.
0: What's your least favorite food? <laughs>
1: oh, oh there's so many. I... I'm not a fan of shellfish. I feel like I have missed out on a lot of sort of like, especially Chinese mm. cooking. Cause yeah. I just cannot handle shellfish like crab, especially. I don't like, I want to like crab, but I don't like crab. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Let's I'm trying to think if there's anything else I don't like. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't like <laughs> any cheese. That's room temperature. <laughs> so when Heather and I went to France. A couple of years ago and they were like, here is the most amazing part of France. <laughs> and I was like, that is not going to be eaten by me. <laughs> I was like that I'm sure it's important and very special, but you i was like, you keep your warm culture, warm, please. I don't yeah. want to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. I was like keep keep uh... your sweaty
2: cheese. Yeah. I was like, I don't there's want flies that.
1: on it. I don't yeah. want to eat that. <laughs> so that's another thing.
2: Those are, those are very acceptable answers. We accept right? the answers. Yeah.
1: Definitely. <laughs> One is kind of like, oh, as an Asian person, don't you like this stuff? No. Right. The other is like, oh, I get that you as an Asian yeah, person totally. would maybe not want like warm dairy. <laughs> yeah.
2: Who's someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, I've always wanted to talk to Alice Monroe, who is definitely in terms of writers that influenced me, her and Timothy Finley are two of my favorite Canadian writers. Timothy Finley has since uh, died. Um, but yes, I actually did an Alice Munro short story festival with the express interest of potentially meeting Alice Munro. And then when I got there, they were like, oh, she never comes. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's good to know. She lives there, but she never not go." That's, goes that's almost
0: festival. as uh, conniving as starting a podcast to talk to all your uh, favorite comic book creators. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> but then she doesn't go. So it'd be like having a podcast. Right. But then she didn't organize. But then not a actually talking Paris. to the
2: creators. Yeah, exactly. yeah.
1: she doesn't want <laughs> to go to a party, which I have to respect. So there you go.
0: I think about all the other creators that you got to meet because you did it, right? So. Yeah.
1: Oh my god, I've gotten to meet some of the people that I like. Some of my favorite writers are people that I, I have their phone numbers now. Like it's really cool to be, and that's mm, the thing yeah. that I desperately miss about not going to festivals now is that I it used to be a chance to have a periodic. Ability to hang out with the people whose work you admire. Well,
0: it's like a class reunion almost, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's like a work show for people whose jobs are really weird.
0: So it's like... (laughs) Work wedding reception.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like a work wedding. You're like, hey, I haven't seen you in two years. What's up?
0: Yeah. Mariko, what does being a modern minority mean to you?
1: For me, I think being a modern minority is more of a conversation. It's about understanding the specifics, but also like to be able to express what something feels like, as opposed to just making like a blanket statement about it. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. I was thinking recently, I had an exchange with somebody that was did not feel good to me. And mm-hmm. I don't think that the person meant anything by it. And I'm pretty sure that there's a way to spin what she said to me that well, you would say, well, that's not super problematic. But I was thinking about it. And really the answer to me was like, I didn't feel comfortable. I felt Mm. like it was inappropriate. And Mm -hmm. I think that like on the good and the bad side of things, like, I think that it's about being able to have a conversation about all of the things that are at play in our interactions, in our decisions that we make in the sort of conversations we have across generations and what have you. So to me, the modern take on it is not to just be a thing, but to be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that. I love that. It's a feeling in a conversation because yeah. it's always changing.
1: It is. And it, there's something to be said. It's like, whenever I teach, it's like you say, like you have to use I statements, right? So you can't say like, that's stupid or that's not a good critique. You can say like that critique doesn't make sense to me because mm-hmm. of where I'm coming from. Like you have to ground it in that.
0: That's so great. Well, Marco, it just means so much to have had this conversation with you. And honestly, your work has it's just meant so, lo- so much to so many people. It's personally impacted me over the years in the way I think, the way I read, the way I write. So just thank you and keep doing the work you're doing. And I love that you're lifting up the rest of the community and now you're leading with us. So thank you so much. Thank
1: you so much, Mariko. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend
0: or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
0: That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal.
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
0: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.
0: you